Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation from Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey. Thanks for being here. I'm very happy to be here with you this evening to share a really interesting and insightful interview with Sarah Lambden, who is a professor of law at CUNY School of Law, City University of New York School of Law. Sarah has written a new book called Data Cartels, the Companies that Control and Monopolize Our Information. Now, a couple of questions right off the bat. First of all, what is a law professor doing writing about companies that control and monopolize our information that's a really good question, which we're going to get into with Sarah, because there's a good and important answer to that. And another question that I have for you listeners is, when I say, just reading the subtitle here, companies that control and monopolize our information, what are companies that come to mind? If you've listened to the show for a while, you might be thinking, well, it's got to be Facebook, Google, uh, increasingly Amazon and Apple and Microsoft and the usual suspects. And I'll tell you, I, in, re- in reading this book, Data Cartels, I noticed that uh, most or all of those companies, the majority for sure, are called out in this book. But they are not the focus of this book. While uh, they are com- the big tech companies that I cover a lot on Tectonic, are companies that fit that description of controlling and monopolizing our information, they're not the focus. (laughs) There are two other companies that a lot of listeners have never heard of or maybe have only heard of in passing that are the focus of this book. You ever heard of a company called Relex? (laughs) Well, you're going to hear about it. Relex. Some people know know it as uh, Elsevier or Lexus. And then there's Another company that people know of as Westlaw, and these are the companies, these two conglomerates uh, are the companies that are the focus of data cartels. And it's really important for us to understand who are the companies that are controlling and monopolizing our information, especially if we haven't heard anything about them before. Sarah brings this up in the book that we've We've heard about what Facebook is doing, Google's doing to to exploit our information, to surveil us, and to turn our information against us, and to uh, have all of these damaging effects. And some of which I I talked with Craig Silverman last week on this show about what Google is doing in its ad business, the the real world effects that Google's ad business has on all of us, and not just in the U.S. Uh, but we we hear about those effects. We, we know kind of what those companies are doing. We have heard almost nothing about these two conglomerates. And you'll, you'll hear as I play this interview, Sarah goes in chapter by chapter talking about the effects that these companies have on different sectors like law and finance and news and uh, their activity as data brokers. Um, if for example, if you are affected at all 
or in also in academic publishing. So first of all, easy one. If you're in academic publishing, if you're a researcher or if you're an academic librarian, you know one or both of these companies. If you're in the, in the uh, legal field, you probably know one or both of these companies. But everyday citizens who are not in academic publishing or law, for example, are still affected by these companies every day. For instance, and we're gonna get into this in the interview, uh, do you know that access to our law, and I mean access to the law, like to look up what the law is in the city-state country that we live in, is not always accessible to the citizens of cities, states, and within, within the U.S.? Do you know it's not always, you know it's more accessible? The, the law itself is more accessible to uh, well-heeled law firms that can pay the subscriptions of these companies and less accessible to citizens and, let's say, public defenders who do not have thousands of dollars a month. That's just one of the basic eye-opening insights that, that come from this book, Data Cartels. I'm going to leave it at that because we're going to really get into it. I just want to, I wanted to set it up for you so that even if you are not immediately involved in one of these sectors that we're talking about, you're going to learn in this interview, just like last week, even if you, I said like last week, even if you're not in advertising, you're going to learn by the end of the interview why you should be concerned what Google is doing. In this interview with Sarah Lambden talking about data cartels, you're going to learn why the activities of these two conglomerates that used to be publishers and now are turn, turning into surveillance and analysis companies, they affect you every day. And we need to pay more attention to what these companies are doing. So Sarah Lambden has done us a service by researching and writing this book. Again, it's called Data Cartels, the Companies That Control and Monopolize Our Information. It's published by Stanford University Press. Why don't we go ahead and listen to my interview with Sarah Lambden here on Tectonic on WFMU, and if you'd like to join in the live listener chat, just go to wfmu.org and click playlists and comments, and you can join in. And here's the interview. Sarah Lambden, welcome to Tectonic. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show. I'm excited to talk about your new book, Data Cartels, The Companies That Control and Monopolize Our Information. Uh, I've read a lot of books for this show, and what really distinguishes data cartels, Sarah, is that I learned a huge amount here. Usually the books are filling in gaps of my knowledge, but this one is breaking ground to explain things going on in surveillance and data brokering and all the issues we're going to get into on the part of companies that I knew very little about and gave me many, many more things to worry about. So thank you for that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry for the nightmare fuel. <laughs> oh, it's a perfect fit for Tectonic. You're very welcome here. So data cartels, you're talking about two main companies, which we're going to get into, but Relics which is this conglomerate whose name comes from Reed Elsevier LexisNexis and Thomson Reuters, which owns Westlaw and other companies. 
after an overview of these two companies in the book, you launch into five successive chapters talking about areas where these data cartels are really taking over in very disturbing ways. Data brokering, academic research, legal information, financial information, and news. In the preface, you told a really interesting story about how you came across this. You're a law professor at CUNY Law here in New York. How did a law professor end up writing this book about a pretty wide set of areas? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think you've already answered part of it by saying that before you read this book, you didn't know about any of this or either of these companies. Because I'll say that when I first learned about how these companies worked, I was equally surprised. I'm a law professor, but my background is actually in legal information management and information science. So I'm a librarian law professor. And in 2017, I was actually primarily a librarian. And one of my main jobs, and this had been my job both at law schools, but also in law firms. And I worked to help build legal information platforms for a while. So in all of my work, the main companies that I trained people how to use that I worked with were Westlaw and LexisNexis. Those are the two legal research products that all legal research practitioners in the United States use. And that goes beyond lawyers. That's like judges, legislators, lawmakers, regulators. We all use Lexis and Westlaw. So I was part of that community, part of that profession, using Westlaw and Lexis for hours, every single day. And pretty happy with them, right? Yeah. I mean, they're intuitive, easy to use. They're the only two products that have these like robust collections of not only quote unquote primary legal information. So not only do they own like the entire corpus of the law, they also have all of these quote unquote secondary sources. So things that explain the law, they have treatises and loose leaf books and law review collections, right? They have more legal information than any other products in the United States easily, right? They're they're a duopoly. They're a legal information duopoly. So they were the center of my world. And I used to joke that sometimes I just felt like a glorified Westlaw or Lexis representative because that was my main job was to introduce new lawyers and practicing lawyers to these products. And that was all well and good, you know. But in 2017, somebody sent me an article about ICE, so Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, about their extreme vetting program, which in 2017 was a brand new initiative. It actually got its name from Donald Trump, who said that he wanted the country to begin doing extreme vetting of people crossing the border. Nobody knew what extreme vetting meant. You know, like, what does this mean? But he wrote it in, I think he wrote it into an executive order and directed ICE um, and DHS to create an extreme vetting program. So to do that, I started reaching out to tech companies to help them build this digital surveillance dragnet or just system that encompassed the movement of immigrants across the border and in the interior of the country. Uh, So to do that, they partnered with entities like Palantir, which is a very controversial predictive policing company that's run by Peter Thiel and other predictive policing entities. But Predictive policing systems rely on robust collections of personal data, right? Like 
without data flowing through them, algorithms are just empty systems, right? They rely on having people's names and addresses and information about where they traveled and who they associate with and what they like to do, right? So it turns out that ICE was trying to find data brokers to supply data to these you know, systems. And among the data brokers that it was courting were LexisNexis and Thomson Reuters. Meaning Westlaw. Yes, exactly. I knew the name of Thomson Reuters as Westlaw's parent company, and I knew the name of LexisNexis as the company that owns Lexis Law. And so it kind of brought together this like collision of interest, these two things that I care deeply about, which are like legal research and legal information. And then also, I work at CUNY Law School, which really focuses on teaching criminal defense lawyers and immigration lawyers in New York City. Um, And also, we have a very diverse student body. So we have a lot of immigrants and other people who would be kind of targets of ICE surveillance um, who attend our law school and who work in our law school and who are part of our community. So here you are hearing about this extreme vetting program, and you look into it and you find out that the companies getting involved are the two companies who you've been using in your law library. So law library companies are somehow now working on surveillance of immigrants for ICE. That had to be a pretty strange moment. Yeah, especially because I was not aware of these companies' data brokering products, their data brokering work at all. I thought that these companies were publishers. They sold themselves to me as publishers. We publish legal information for the legal community. That is all I understood Thomson Reuters and LexisNexis to be. Like, I vaguely understood that they also publish news content, right? Like, Reuters has its own news agency. And I think, I'm not even sure of this, but I think I may have known that LexisNexis was somehow related to Elsevier, which is the primary academic publisher and academic information provider in the world. But I did not know that these companies also had robust data brokering businesses under their corporate umbrellas. Um, when I first heard about this ICE initiative, my my initial thought was, so are are they selling like the law to I like how how are <laughs> they going to work sure with law? <laughs> yeah, I was like, what what are what are my legal research companies even going to do with ICE's extreme vetting program? Because uh, I I knew. I mean, I know that, of course, there are numerous DHS attorneys. Every agency has its own legal counsel. I know that they have immigration judges, right? So I know that that within DHS and ICE, there are already people who are using Lexis's law product. But I didn't know that LexisNexis and Thomson Reuters were also data brokers to law enforcement and immigration enforcement. That was a shock to me. You write in the preface of the book, as of the early 2000s, there were companies operating, as they call themselves, publishers of four main kinds of information, academic, legal, financial, and news, which, of course, matches the progression of chapters in your book. These companies were Elsevier, LexisNexis, Thomson Financial, Reuters News, and Westlaw. But then you write about what's happened recently. You write, over the past decade... These companies switched their business models from publishing to data analytics. And this is where 
I'm saying I learned a lot from this book. I was unaware of the vast influence that this duopoly has on all four of those areas, academic, legal, financial, and news, acting in this new business model of data analytics, and I should say surveillance and data analytics, and really less and less looking or acting like what we understand publishers to be. Just speaking of relics, you write in the data brokering chapter, I was amazed by this, 70% of local governments and 80% of federal agencies use relics data products, including over 2,000 police departments and almost 1,000 sheriff departments around the country. What are local governments, federal agencies, police departments, and sheriff departments using relics for? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll point out those statistics come from Lexis's own ad copy, their own websites and their own annual reports, you know, their own uh, shareholder reports. So this is information that, that is part of their business model. They are selling data analytics products full of our personal data from over 10,000 different sources updated in real time. So it's like this fire hose of personal data that they're getting from thousands of sources that is constantly being churned and updated and renewed, you know, to match what is going on currently with us. And they have these things that they call Lex IDs. We each have a Lex ID. It's like our social security number, but it's like a, instead of being a government assigned number that's designated to us, it's a tracking number that's created by Lexis, our Lex ID. And I think of them as these big virtual files that just this fire hose of data about all of us is being sorted into. Okay. So you have Relics and Thomson Reuters, each with a surveillance operation, a market or a platform of some sort that's collecting data on all American citizens from all sorts of public records. I think in later years, they began sourcing data from Facebook and other tech companies as well, right? These days, they're a clearinghouse of all the data that they can get from any kind of records, public, private, online, social media, all fused into one dossier that they've got on each of us. Is that right? So that's a really good question because the system, these 10,000 sources and the system that they use to collect our data is completely opaque because there are no laws in the United States that require relics and other data brokers to disclose their data sources and what kind of data they have and where they're getting it from. However, based on the products that companies like LexisNexis market to industry and government, we can assess that they are getting social media and other types of private data because they're selling social media tracking products. They're selling products that they claim will identify and track people's social media activities. So we have to assume they're getting social media data from somewhere. But we're working in, in the dark, right? We're working in like this black box of data sets where we don't know exactly what those 10,000 sources are. We know they claim they have a ton of data. We know that they get a lot of public records data. We know that there's private data in there. All of the assessment of what their data sources are that I've been able to gather come from their advertising material. So 
in their law enforcement products, their, their advertising material for it, they list like all the stuff you can do with it, right? You can find somebody's address. You can see every license they've ever had. You can get their credit card information, right? So we know, we, we then have to backtrack and say, okay, so that means they are getting data from this point and that point and this entity and that entity. And it's like this tangled math that we are left to pick at kind of one string at a time. So in order for us to sever or even figure out those ties between where the data comes from, we have to do it one by one. And it involves a lot of detective work and research work. And it's, it's a really tough thing to do. Let's talk about why we might want to curtail some of the information collection. Because some people still today will say, I don't mind if a company looks at my credit card transactions or utility bills if they're that interested because I have nothing to hide because I'm not doing anything wrong. You do a good job in data cartels of pointing out the problem of these duopolies. One of the many problems is the errors that creep in to the data sets and how that impacts people's lives. The thing is that these businesses depend on quantity of information. Look at our 10,000 data sets. They do not depend on the quality of the information. So they're just getting data anywhere and everywhere, putting it together, and out comes this... You ever played with one of those Play-Doh things? You put in a bunch of Play-Doh and you squeeze them together and out comes this extruded goo. You know, And that's what I imagine these analytics products are actually creating. It's this extruded information product that may or may not be fully accurate. In the data brokering chapter... You write this little example that I'll read. When the Social Security Administration started using LexisNexis's Accurant product to determine whether people getting government assistance had unreported assets that could disqualify them, bad data falsely listed people as owning real property. Across the nation, extremely low-income elderly people and people with disabilities had their benefits suspended on the basis of erroneous information provided by Accurant. What do you do if you're a low-income elderly person somewhere, your benefits get, this is just me talking now, when your, your benefits get suspended, who do, you, who do you call at LexisNexis? Excuse me, my information is wrong. When you're dealing with extruded information product, you don't know which of the 10,000 sources got it wrong and you're out of luck. I mean, that's a, that's a terrible problem. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's one of, was one of my biggest lessons when I started doing this work, you know, for me, it was a real self-education. I'm not, I don't come from a tech background. I work, I work to help build legal, you know, information products, but I don't like code on the weekends, right? I'm not that kind of an expert. So I made this assumption. I was like, well, algorithms are bad. Hmm. You know, and I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Like you can read a lot about algorithmic bias and algorithmic inaccuracy, right? There's a bunch of great literature and research out there about that. But one thing that really shocked me, what I think became kind of the touchstone of what I thought to be the problem about these companies is data quality. So it's like you said, it's like one of those Play-Doh fun, you know, those, those, those little um, extruders where you take a chunk of Play-Doh and you squish it through. And if the extruder is the algorithm, right, the thing that's processing the data, the, the Play-Doh is also a problem. You take all these little 
kind of carelessly squished together chunks of information or chunks of data from who knows what sources and just squeeze it on through, you know, a biased or problematic algorithm, you actually have two problems. You have a data problem and an algorithmic problem, right? And these, since these companies are supplying the data, the biggest problem that these companies kind of lodge into our data analytics system and our predictive policing system and our social security system is bad information, bad data about all of us. Our Lex ID folder is probably full of errors, or at least definitely contains a few errors. One of my counterparts in the information science world requested his Thomson Reuters data set. So if you live in California, there are consumer protection laws that actually allow you to request your data from one of these companies. There's no requirement that they have to do anything else, but they do have to give you your data. So he managed to get his data set from Thomson Reuters product. He said, I want this. They sent him a 41-page report just full of data about him, but a lot of that data was wrong. If you've ever given someone a wrong phone number or if your name is a lot, this is a very common problem. If your name is a lot like somebody else's name or the same as somebody else's name, that other person's data is going to be mixed in with your data. Like if your name is Aaron Davis or... Bill Smith, I'm sorry, your data set is probably a total mess in these companies' data collections. So those data errors then get filtered through the entities that use them. So I think the Social Security Administration is a really great example. There's also, there's a Newsweek article that's, its title is something like, if LexisNexis makes a mistake, you pay. And it's this article about people who have been locked out of their own bank accounts because their data got conflated with or mixed in with their sibling's data and their sibling had some sort of banking issue, but then they were not able to access their own money. Uh, People who weren't able to get auto insurance because their name is very similar to someone else's who had a bad insurance history. So there are all these examples in this Newsweek article. Really awful. I mean, how did we come to build a system where errors in a database that have to do with someone else run through a poorly coded algorithm can affect people's lives with no recourse or appeal. But let's move on from data brokering because that's only one part of this book. Let's move on to academic research. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host. We're halfway through my interview with Sarah Lambden, author of the book, Data Cartels, the companies that control and monopolize our information. And you're hearing the conglomerates Relex and Thomson Reuters, also known as Elsevier and Westlaw, are in control of our data and selling that extruded data product to all sorts of sources. Uh, In the second half of the interview, as promised, we're going to get into academic publishing. So leaving aside the, the first part of the interview, which was just about data cartels, then we're going to be getting into the uh, academic publishing and the uh, the the legal profession and how that is greatly affected 
by the monopolistic or I suppose duopolistic tactics of these companies that really resemble everything that we see in, in the standard big tech companies that I cover every week. If you'd like to uh, join in the live listener chat as we talk about the interview with uh, Sarah Lambden, go to WFMU.org, click playlist and comments, or you can in the future go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm, and click the playlist link for the January 23rd, 2023 show. Let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with Sarah Lambden talking about her book, Data Cartels, here on Tectonic on WFMU. What you're writing about here is the academic journals that publish research from researchers, universities, research labs all over the world. Much like we were saying in the beginning of the interview about the change in business model of these companies from being publishers to being data analytics and surveillance companies, this is very much the case in the world of academic research. It's changed. Back in the old days, as you write, once people bought a journal or a book, their own property rights took over, meaning when it, when it used to be a print-based business. And you continue. But on Elsevier's digital platforms, the company never cedes that power to its customers. Instead of selling journals outright, Elsevier invites customers to subscribe to their content services. So here you're painting a picture of what's happening in academic research that looks very similar, and you point this out, it's very similar to the Netflix model. When you subscribe to Netflix, you don't own any of those TV episodes or movies. You just subscribe on a monthly basis to get access to them. For academic research, this is a huge sea change from when people used to be able to hold the journal in their hands and say, I own this, and within some, some legal boundaries, I can make some copies and I can share this to some extent. Now people don't have any power at all. All of the power remains with Elsevier. Yeah, yeah. And I think it is all part of this transition from publisher to data analytics. So I think the desire to keep a lot of the copyright entitlements to themselves, not not selling outright, right? Keep kind of keeping people on the hook and forcing people to come on their platforms to use and access journal articles. That's part of the rationale for changing a model from outright ownership to this kind of licensing system, this Netflix-like system. But I think the other is rooted in data collection because when academics and people who visit libraries and you know anyone who wants to access articles has to do so on Elsevier's platforms, it also gives Elsevier the opportunity to collect a lot of data about those people, about those researchers. In order to access an Elsevier journal article, you will probably have to either pay to overcome a paywall and enter some of your personal data in that payment process or access it through a library if you're affiliated with some sort of research institution, in which case all of your data that's associated with your academic account um, will become known to the platform that you're entering, whether it's Elsevier's platform or a different platform that's that's providing Elsevier uh, material. And once you're in that platform, people call it a walled garden, right? The platforms are often called walled gardens. And that's because once you cross the walls of that garden, once you pay the entry fee of giving your data, you know, you say, okay, my name is Sarah Lambden, and I'm about to do some research on this platform. Once you're in the garden, 
you can be tracked as you roam about the garden. Every click you make, every search term you use, that is all valuable data about what you are doing online that these companies now can collect and store about you. So not only is it a way to limit the sale, the full outright sale of journal articles and academic material and academic research, it's a way to increase surveillance of researchers and collect more data about researchers that then are made into valuable research products that grant funders can buy, um, academic institutions who want you know, more profitable labs and initiatives in the institution can buy, people who are determining tenure and hiring at these institutions can purchase information about how much impact a researcher's work has and who they affiliate with. All of that is valuable data, right, that these companies can collect and monetize by not selling products outright, by creating these walled garden systems instead. And then we get to some of the same problems we were talking about with data brokers. What if some of the information is wrong? And why should people be surveilled and tracked every moment of their lives anyway? I mean, if you're a researcher, why should your activity as a researcher be tracked by this giant corporation? And then, right. in addition to those, we have this new problem in academic research and legal information that we didn't see necessarily in data brokering, which is that we're experiencing monopoly or really duopoly pricing. As we know, when competition gets snuffed out and these companies, they, they follow the big tech monopoly playbook. I mean, it's amazing to see these companies doing the same things that Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple do every day. They snuff out competition. They avoid regulation. They collude on different practices to maintain their cartel. And the prices go up in academic research. You write, it only costs Elsevier $600 to publish an article, yet Elsevier makes $4,000 from selling it. What happens to the other $3,400? And this is a point you made very well in this academic research chapter, that a lot of these universities, a lot of these institutions that are creating the research, they're public. We, the taxpayers, have, have funded those institutions in order to create this research. Why is the access to that research now being held in these giant corporations? They're jacking up the prices. That's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people feel that way. Uh, even the federal government, like right now, there are White House initiatives that are trying to make publicly funded research accessible to the public without these paywalls and without these kind of choke points on access. But one of the problems with monopolies and with cartel-like behavior, with snuffing out competition and with trying to dominate and maintain dominance in a market like academic information is that consumers don't have a lot of power or leverage and consumers don't have a lot of choice. In the legal information context, I always point out that you know, I before I wrote this book, I wrote an, a law review article saying, hey, did you know that Lexis and Westlaw are doing this? This seems a little bit sketchy. And people were really, lawyers were really upset about it. They were like, oh, this is terrible that our legal research companies are doing this. But nobody stopped using Westlaw and Lexis. And it's not because we love Westlaw and Lexis and we think we love paying their exorbitant fees, right? They Everybody always gripes about how expensive these products are and how expensive Elsevier access is, right? But we don't stop using their products because we need them. And there's no other choice, right? If you snuff out all the competition, if you stifle competition, 
and you maintain, you know, a duopoly or a monopoly or a small oligopoly, like in the academic information world, we don't have anywhere else to go. I want to make sure that we talk about the law chapter. You write about legal information. This focuses on two companies, Westlaw, which is part of Thomson Reuters, and Lexis, which is part of Relix. And here we're seeing a lot of these same problems of paywalls, restricted access, surveillance, and so on. In legal information in particular, there's this problem you bring up that it's so expensive to get access to the law on Westlaw and Lexis that, as you write, only well-moneyed law firms and corporate counsel are likely to afford it. This creates a vast inequity between the law firms with money and, let's say, public defenders, some of whom you're training at CUNY Law School. I told this to a friend of mine, that there's this problem in access to the law, and they said, well, isn't the law publicly available? Couldn't the public defenders just go read the law at their local law library? That's a really good question. In a sense, yes, right? In a sense, the law is a public resource. It belongs to the public. It is created by the people that we assign to do the task of governing. There's this idea called the government edicts doctrine that, yes, the law belongs to the public and it must be publicly accessible. But that doctrine, that idea, conflicts with the realities of our information infrastructure. So, yeah, the law should be publicly available. But building and maintaining a legal information infrastructure that always has like that most updated law that's well organized costs a lot of money and requires a lot of maintenance and it requires workers and labor. And we don't really do a good job of funding that through our public resources and through our public initiatives, our government initiatives. So we don't have a public Westlaw. There is no public Lexus. We are in a situation where governments, state, local, and federal governments outsource a lot of our legal information work to Lexus and Westlaw. There's an organization called publicresource.org that is run by Carl Malamud, and he is, I think, the biggest kind of activist in the area, in this area, pointing out this problem and then actually suing states that outsource their legal information access to Lexis and Westlaw. And there was actually a Supreme Court case, a pretty recent one called Georgia versus publicresource.org. The case went all the way up to the Supreme Court and John Roberts wrote the majority opinion. And he said, the government edicts doctrine is supposed to ensure that we have public access to the law and that Lexis is not allowed to put the law behind the paywall. Or Georgia, I mean, technically, it's Georgia state's not allowed to put the law behind Lexis's paywall. Like that, that's really what the case is about. It's about the state of Georgia outsourcing its statutory information access to Lexis. The Supreme Court said you're not allowed to do that. And one thing that John Roberts pointed out. Uh, that Justice Roberts pointed out, sorry, uh, is that having an open access, free information resource that is not updated regularly and that isn't Lexis quality, and then having the quote unquote better updated, well-explained version of the law behind a paywall creates two tiers of legal information access. There's like this really complicated, hard to understand, maybe outdated version that's available for free for the public. And then the good version that is well explained, that is updated, that has something called a citator that says whether the law is still good or not. 
that's behind a paywall and can only be accessed by people who can afford to subscribe to Lexis. So there's a two-tier problem that our current infrastructure creates because we don't fund a public Westlaw alternative or Lexis alternative. And then I introduce in the book, I introduce a third tier because Westlaw and Lexis are also starting to create legal analytics systems that help lawyers who can afford to pay for those systems kind of game the law. So they're creating like predictive systems that tell lawyers which judges are going to be most favorable to certain arguments. They help instruct lawyers about how to word certain arguments in a way that certain judges and certain courts prefer. Uh, it's, it's, it's the same kind of legal analytic system you see in predictive policing and other systems that these, these companies are participating in. But now it's it's like predictive lawmaking, predictive lawyering. Um, and that's a third tier of information access that only a special few can afford to get. But if you can get information predicting how a particular judge, a particular court is going to decide your case, that's very valuable information. And there's another issue that I had never considered before, which is that lawyers who can afford to get across that paywall they're being tracked, they're being surveilled while using the service. You write in your conclusions, legal practitioners should not have to worry that using a data analytics system is violating their client's confidentiality. So you have the system watching what one of the teams in the case is looking up and what are the court cases they may reference. Would these companies, Westlaw and Lexis, actually sell access in some way to the other team about what one team is looking up? So the short answer is, is we aren't sure. We can't know. It's all so opaque that we can't know. I mean, the pragmatic part of me says, oh, that would be very complicated, right? Oh, how would they arrange a system like that? But if you stop and think, both of these companies already allow for, you know, criminal law enforcement purposes and for other law enforcement, they allow or they say in their privacy policy that they will hand over information pursuant to a criminal investigation request or pursuant to a um, subpoena, right? So there are certain ways, potentially, even in our current system, that your research data could be obtained. And then, I mean, this is just completely, this is this might be very far-fetched, but I think it's it's worth noting. I have another chapter where I talk about financial information and there was a situation in Bloomberg LP at one point. So Bloomberg LP is one of the major financial information providers. Uh, Bloomberg terminals are ubiquitous in the financial sector. They, you know, they predict financial outcomes and financial trends. They do all sorts of really robust data analytics work in the financial sector. But Bloomberg LP also has a news service, a financial news service. And it turned out that Bloomberg News reporters or Bloomberg news creators were looking at what certain financial firms were doing in their Bloomberg system. So they were tracking like, you know, Morgan Stanley users that were using Bloomberg in order to develop news stories that they would report out about what might happen in the financial sector. So it isn't impossible. And especially if we don't have any oversight or safeguards or transparency, it is not impossible to imagine a world where that could happen or is happening. Well, they're already surveilling prisoners, you said, who are using prison law libraries that are now all digital. 
and their search queries are all surveilled already, right? Yes. So these companies also create these new digital law library replacements. So it used to be that prisons and jails had libraries that were paper. They were paper shelves of law books where incarcerated people could learn more about their case. They could learn how to represent themselves before a parole board, um, how to file an appeal, right? Because these things are really important, especially because for incarcerated people, as they go through the court system, they have representation. They're guaranteed constitutionally, they're guaranteed legal representation. But once you are in the carceral system, that representation fades away, right? So suddenly you're kind of representing yourself and you're maneuvering through the legal world yourself. So access to legal information is very important. But both Westlaw and Lexis have developed these correctional facility products. So now instead of paper shelves, they sell products that can either be accessible by like a kiosk, which is like, what I, it's like an ATM machine, you know, it's like that plastic tamper-proof, bulletproof cover over computer system, or these iPads that I'm sure are similarly shielded. But in those systems, one of the selling points for jails and prisons is that they track every inmate's use of the system. So if an inmate, whatever an inmate looks at on the system, but also if an inmate tries to like go to Google or go to a non-Westlaw or Lexus URL address or, you know, location on the internet, it tracks that. Um, and it actually can be used in a punitive way. Uh, I actually found records. I forget what state it was, but somebody FOIA'd somebody's Westlaw use inside of, you know, some inmates Westlaw use. And you could see it tracks them everywhere they go, everything they do in Westlaw. And it reports it straight to prison administrators. Well, we need to wrap up, Sarah. This has been a great conversation, and we have more than scratched the surface, but we have not gotten to all the problems (laughs) that you write about in data cartels. And you also, in in addition to uh, what Carl Malamud is doing at publicresource.org, there are other initiatives to fix some of what these data cartels are doing. Again, the book is Data Cartels, the Companies that Control and Monopolize Our Information, And I would just recommend it to listeners who want to understand what this duopoly is doing in all of these facets of American life today. It's written by my guest, Sarah Lambden. Sarah, thanks for putting in all the time to create this book. And thanks for being on the show. Hope you'll be back sometime. Yeah, it was great talking to you. And I hope I didn't give everybody too much nightmare fuel. just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the remaining 10 minutes and 45 seconds. And then the great Dave Mandel comes on the air to give you, it's complicated, his prog rock show. Dave's in the bullpen, ready to get started. We just heard my interview with Sarah Lambden, who's a professor at CUNY Law here in New York City, and the author of a new book called Data Cartels, 
the companies that control and monopolize our information, talking about Elsevier, well, really the conglomerate is called Relex these days, and Thomson Reuters, better known as Westlaw, which is one of that conglomerate's component parts. We talked about those companies acting as data brokers, working with state and federal governments all over the country, their role in jacking up prices and restricting access in academic publishing and uh, bringing surveillance to bear on researchers themselves and then doing the same thing in the legal field. Uh, if you're interested in these topics, there's much more detail in Sarah's book. As I said, we, we did a pretty good job of giving you a summary of many of the issues in the book, but um, there's, there's more to explore in the book, and I'd, I'd recommend it. Published by Stanford University Press, there's a link to the Stanford University Press page for data cartels on the playlist at wfmu.org, where you can find it in the future at tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H, tonic.fm. Also on the playlist, I have put a couple of other topical links that I came across around the time that Sarah and I spoke. I, I just noticed coincidentally that there were some uh, some other developments that people, I, especially on Mastodon, where I'm spending some more time, were, were writing. There was one Mastodon post uh, just from 10 days ago, January 13, by Mastodon user named Aaron Ackland, who wrote, starting 2023, four universities are pausing or ending their Elsevier subscription due to exorbitant pricing. Elsevier's subscription was costing them roughly 10% of their library's entire budget. Elsevier's prices have increased each year and have outpaced inflation, despite Elsevier having the highest profit margin of virtually any other industry or publisher. And then there's a link. Actually, if you go into the graphics, I don't know if all of you know this, but on the playlist, I put in graphics for just about every segment of the show. A lot of them are kind of jokey memes kind of things, but there's one on tonight's playlist that uh, is a chart from the article that that user was linking to and quoting from. And the chart title is Elsevier is more profitable than any industry. And you can see that Elsevier uh, has a net margin above 35%. And then it just goes down from there. Banks, and broadcasting, financial services, railroads, investment management, software, real estate, they all pale in comparison to Elsevier's profit margins. And whatever else we may say about some of the, uh, the features or the value or the access that these companies do give us, we have to be concerned when we see exorbitant pricing and especially the exploitative surveillance that these companies are now layering in to these areas of, of work, these sectors of academic publishing and, and uh, legal publishing. In fact, as Sarah said, these companies don't even call themselves publishers anymore. They call themselves data analytics companies. And you know what that means? That means surveillance. The only way they get their hands on that much data to even claim that their little Play-Doh extrusion operation is worth anything is by conducting exploitative surveillance on all of us, both all of us as citizens to feed their 10,000 data sources that they so proudly uh, promote to their clients, but also surveillance of people like academic researchers and lawyers where the systems that they are using are, are, are actually surveilling their actions on the systems. It's like if we had, imagine if we had an old 
an old, listen to me, an old style library where we actually had books, you know, a law library where the, you actually have books. And, and in order to go into the law library and pull a book off the shelf, you had to consent to have some giant corporate uh, presence, you know, representative from some conglomerate follow you around and watch what book you pulled off the shelf and watch what, what uh, case law you were looking up and watch what notes you took on which parts of the law that were, were relevant to your case. Would people have, I mean, that's, that's outrageous. I mean, people would have laughed that idea right out of the room. And yet that's exactly, exactly the system that we are allowing to be built in this country in order to enrich two companies. Um, and, and that's wrong. And so I am fully opposed to this. And as, as Sarah said, there are good people like Carl Malamud and others out there. And there's a bunch of other resources of good people and good projects that are trying to do something different that are listed in data cartels. So thanks, Sarah, for being with us. And um, gosh, there's more I could say, but go to the playlist and you can read through some of those links. If you have more comments that you want to send to me, you can either post them there on the playlist, I'll see them there, or you can email me at mark at wfmu.org, M-A-R-K at wfmu.org. And that's about all the time we have this evening. I hope you have found this an instructive, if not absolutely enraging, interview. As someone said on the playlist, anger can be helpful if it's directed in the right way. And I agree with that. And that is one of my propulsive emotions as I put together this show just about every week, certainly including this week. And um, I also want to tell you that you are listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, you've got a little bit of homework. I want you to avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. And hey, be careful when you go around Relax and Thomson Reuters. My goodness. Um, this evening, I thought that we would go out on a different uh, sort of a different sort of song. Oh gosh, I've got to bring it up real quick. This is a song that comes from Berlin, and you know the thing about Berlin is that Berlin knows something about intrusive surveillance. Berliners know, and they still remember. They have that that cultural knowledge of what happens when you allow people unfettered access to, let's say, all of your records, all of your transactions, all of your everything that you do everywhere. The exact system that we're building in this country, people in Berlin know is wrong and dangerous, and so they are resisting it. And you know what was interesting? A friend of mine who lives in Germany uh, sent me this, sent me this uh, song called Zukunft Pink, that comes from uh, Peter Fox and featuring the singer Inez. And this was a song, it's a dance hall song, kind of a pop song. It debuted last October and it immediately went to number one on the German charts. And it came from Berlin. And I just want to share it with you to remind you there are people out there who are resisting this and we should join them in resisting these powers of surveillance and exploitation and exploitative capital that are coming for all of us. Hope you have a good week, everybody. See you next time. Schwarz-Weiß-Reggae, yeah. Liebe für alle und für mich selbst. Yeah.
And that's the way we start. Welcome, folks, to another installment of It's Complicated, an hour of Prague and Prague-adjacent music. I'm your host, Dave Mandel. I'm here right exactly at this time every Monday evening, 7 to 8 p.m., here at listener-supported WFMU. And we are going to begin this evening's show with, let's see, a German group called Zion. I've never heard their name pronounced. I've never heard their name said out loud. D-Z-Y-A-N is the spelling. German group from the early 70s. We're going to hear something from 73 from Zion. Following that, we are going to hear 
Uh, we're going we're gonna to move it a little closer to home, closer to my home, and we're going to hear a Brooklyn-based group called, I would, I would call them, I would pronounce their name, Mustafina. Uh, no, I would, yeah, Mustafina. They pronounce it Mustafina. Go figure. Let a thousand pronunciations bloom. So Zion from Germany, 1973, will begin our show this evening. And then we're going to hear from Mustafina. And then we'll be back for more. Stick around.